Thank you, team, for drawing our hearts to the greatness of our God, which is what worship is all about. That was good. Very, very good. Thank you. Before we get into uh, God's Word today, I I just thought I might make a a very brief personal note. Uh, This past week, I uh, celebrated a birthday and was blessed to receive many cards and Facebook posts and notes and many people mocking the passing of my life in various ways, uh, which is always encouraging. Uh, but I, I, I had one card in particular, many cards attempted to be funny, one in particular that I, uh, that sort of got a hold of my funny bone. And I've uh, read this card many times since I received it. I thought I'd share it with you. I don't know how well you can see it, especially the balcony. Uh, it says, you're not old until the fat lady sings. Okay? You see that? There's sort of a large woman on the front cover there. And then you open it. I don't know why. It just cracks me up every time. <laughs> so all week I've just been going. So... Clever card. I liked it. Our goal today is to wrap up 1 Corinthians 14. Now, I don't know how many of you caught it in the video that was played earlier in the service uh, as we celebrated the entire year, but it it happened to mention that uh, in our teaching series in, in 2010, took us from 1 Corinthians 10 through 1 Corinthians 13. (laughs) A whole year, three chapters. So uh, we will be uh, definitely stepping on the accelerator today to do 14 verses, but I think that we can, I think that we can do it. I want to begin by uh, sharing a little bit about my, my, my family history. I was born in Michigan. Any Michiganders we got here with us? Proud Michiganders, possibly a few. All right. And uh, so I, since I was born there, I, I want to give you a, a very brief Michigan geography lesson, okay? The state of Michigan is divided into two parts. You have way up in the north, the Upper Peninsula, which is also known as what? The UP, that's right. And if you're from the UP, you're also called a... Uper, exactly right. So you have the upper peninsula, and then you have the lower peninsula. And the lower peninsula uh, is famously shaped like a hand. And so if you uh, meet somebody who's from Michigan and you don't know the town, they're, they're well, I'm, I'm, I'm from about right here. And the other person's like, well, I'm from like over here. And if somebody does that, then you know they're a genuine Mich- Michigander because that's the way, that's the way that they do it. So between the upper peninsula and the lower peninsula, at the, at the tip there, there is just a little body of water where Lake Michigan and Lake Huron meet. Well, back in the 50s, this was big news in Michigan, they completed a bridge from the lower peninsula to the upper peninsula, and the name of that bridge is the Mackinac Bridge. Now, people that are not from there call it 
the Mackinac Bridge, but it properly is pronounced the Mackinac Bridge. And I remember as a kid, uh, because my, my dad is from the, uh, from the UP, we would go there for Christmases and holidays and that kind of thing. So we'd end up driving often over the bridge. And I remember as a kid going over the bridge and being, it was just always so exciting to go over the bridge. And my dad would go like along the edge and, and drive slow and roll the windows down and we'd, you know, stick our heads out and, uh, you can look all the way down to the water. And I remember having this sort of feeling of terror and wonder, uh, because it really is a very tall, big, bridge. You're way up there when you're on that bridge. And uh, it's one of the biggest suspension bridges uh, in the world, the Mackinac Bridge, which takes people from the lower peninsula to the upper peninsula. And it goes the other way as well, by the way. (laughs) Now, wouldn't that be a great strategy to populate the UP, which it needs population? They complete the bridge, but then they don't tell them it's one way. (laughs) So (laughs) you're stuck here now. Anyway, uh, what Paul does in this passage, and the reason that I have this up here, is you see in the, in the, in the Mackinac Bridge that there are two uh, towers that the whole bridge basically is suspended from. And in our passage today, Paul does the same thing. He builds two towers, and then he suspends his entire argument there. And his purpose is to get people, the Corinthians, from where they are spiritually to where they need to be. And so bear that image in mind, and I want, to, I want to tell you what the two towers are to begin with, and then we'll get to the things that he, that he hangs from them. Here's the first tower, and this is, a, this is a familiar tower in chapter 14. It's simply this, that Christians in the church need to be committed to building up the church. He has said this in verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 12, verse 18, and now again in verse 26, where he says this, let all things be done for building up. So Christians, this is not a mall. The church is not a consumer mall, a spiritual consumer mall, where you're just kind of here, I'm going to have a little bit of this, I'm going to have a little bit of that, I'm here to kind of get what I can get out of the mall. This is a church. And by that, it's, it's not the building, it's the people. The people are the church. And we exist here and are equipped by the Holy Spirit with spiritual gifts for the purpose of building up one another. And Paul has been pounding that and pounding that and pounding that to the very self-oriented Corinthians who thought it was all about them. Now, we've already talked about that, so I'm not going to spend more time on it, but that is the first tower. Here's the second one, and this one is a, is a newer one, and we are going to spend a little time on it. He says this in verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He repeats it again in verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. The context here is what it should be like when the congregation gathers together. A worship service much like this one. How should people conduct themselves and what should be the priorities uh, of the congregation? And Paul says here, he says, listen, you've got to realize that in your gathered assemblies, there needs to be order. Why? Because God is a God of order. He is not a God of confusion. 
In other words, we need to reflect in our gathered assemblies the character of God. Now, let's talk about this a little bit because this is going to be important, uh, not only because of the point that he makes, but because of some of what he hangs off of this point here in this chapter. What does it mean that God is not a God of confusion? Well, the word there is a word that is used of political unrest or political anarchy. And it's been a long time since we've had that in the news. Right? Now, here I am talking to third service. You've all been up. You've had time to have your coffee, read the paper, watch the news. First service maybe would be somewhat unaware of what's going on. You've had all morning to catch up. You probably know things I don't know because of whatever happened since I left to come to church here today. But in the, in the country of Egypt, of course, there's all kinds of anarchy that's going on right now. Nobody's really sure who's in charge. And there are mobs in the streets. And uh, the police have given up. And so there's just mass confusion. That's the word that is used here. God is not that way. He is not a God of anarchy. He's not a God of confusion, but rather is a God of order and peace. Now, what is he referring to here about God? Well, you're at church today, and guess what we're going to do today? We're going to talk about God. So let's talk about what God is like and what Paul is referring to here. Namely, he is describing the nature of the Godhead. As we talk about God... He is a triune God. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And within those inner Trinitarian relationships, within those three relationships of the Godhead, Paul says that there is order. There is not confusion. There is peace. What he means by this is that there is in their relationships a mutual understanding of who they are and what their purpose and their roles are within the Trinity. There's a kind of relational harmony. There's a balance. There's a symmetry to the Trinity. God the Father is not going, ah, oh, why does the Spirit get to be on earth now? I wish I could do that. And the son's not saying to the father, why did you send me to go die? Why didn't you send the spirit? And the son and the spirit aren't secretly conniving to try to overthrow the father. All right? None of that is going on. There is peace and harmony and mutuality within the Godhead. Everything in God is in its proper proportion. And most important, this. The three members of the Trinity view their equality of personhood and different roles as good, honorable, and beautiful. Now, you got to remember I said that because it becomes very important in a delicate area of this passage, which we're going to get to in just a moment. So God is symmetrical. He is balanced. When God When God creates, when God is involved in anything, he expresses that balance in everything that he does. So that, for example, in creation, creation is not God, that is pantheism, but creation reflects the character of God, Romans 1, 18 and 19, so that we can see his divine attributes in the world around us. And so we look in the world and guess what we find? We find in the universe this amazing balance and symmetry. From the atom to the galaxies, everything has its proper place. Everything's functioning in a kind of balance. There is a proportion to the universe that is beautiful and scientists marvel at. 
Just a couple examples. If you think about time, now we live in time, and so it's easy for us to sort of forget that, you know, uh, 24 hours is how long it takes for this sun to take make one entire revolution. We're spinning at like, is it 18 or 19,000 miles an hour or something like that right now? We're moving that fast. That's sort of freaky to think about, right? And if it wasn't for gravity, we would just go off into the universe. When was the last time you thanked God for gravity? It's been a while, I'll bet. Uh, and that we are spinning on a globe that is simultaneously orbiting the sun and it takes precisely 365 spins to go one time around the sun. And that that is done with such precision that we can have calendars and clocks and watches. It's just on the money. Galactically. Right on the money. That's a pretty amazing thing. And we go to the beach or we go, we go to the forest and we take a leaf and we look at the leaf or we look at the flower and what do we see in those? We see symmetry and beauty in them. And we, we, we go to the beach and we pick up a sand dollar or any kind of a, a seashell and there's that sort of swooshy, you know what I'm talking about? There's a swoosh to the seashell that mathematicians have calculated and that calculation is seen all over the world. The golden ratio, all over the place. Beauty. Is that, is that, are, are this, is the planet spinning exactly, precisely 24 hours, 365, all the way around the sun? Is that just an amazing coincidence? No. There is a God of order who created that. So wherever God is at work, wherever God is evident, his character is also on display. There is always going to be order, not anarchy, when God is at work in something. Now, the greatest example of this is the person of Christ. We look at Christ's life, and there is such a proportion to it. There's such a, 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 a symmetry of character and virtue that we find in Christ. As he simultaneously balances what seem to be opposing virtues like justice and mercy, like strength and meekness, like glory and humility. He was the God man, perfectly proportioned in his personhood. It's the beauty of Christ. The world hasn't got over it. What, what was it about Christ? So many things, but this is one of them. There was just a, there was a majesty about him that the world hasn't gotten over yet. And we celebrate here at Bethel Church. Amen. All right. So Christ epitomizes this. And the point that Paul is making here is that wherever God is and wherever he is at work, you will find this quality of God on display. That he is bringing order from chaos. That he is bringing peace uh, from anarchy. That, the, that he's, he's bringing a, 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 a kind of divine proportion and balance. Orderliness. So that today, I can look out in this congregation, and I don't have to know everything that's going on in the lives that are represented in this room right now. But here's what I can tell you. If your marriage is in trouble... If your marriage feels like chaos, 
What you need is God to work in your marriage. Because when God is at work in your marriage, there is a husband and wife who find their proper place and proportion. There is order that is brought in peace. And I can say this to every family that is here that might have fought like the Dickens all the way here and you did it all week and there is a, there is a kind of, of uh, a relational discord that is plaguing your home. What does your home need? Somebody to move out? Uh, you know, s- s- some other thing like that? No. Your home needs the Lord to be found at the center of it. Because when God is at work in a family, there is a sense of peace and proportion and balance that is brought to the home. And I can say to every person that is here today and behind the smile, your life is falling apart. And you feel like it's all spinning out of control. And you are self-destructing. And you wonder, what do I need? I need a job so I have money, or I need a girlfriend so I have intimacy, or I, I, I need a family so I'm not lonely, or I need somebody to love me, or whatever it is. What you need, my dear friend, is you need God at work in your life. Much like the man in the tombs that Jesus met who was crazy, but after an encounter with Christ, he found his mind and he found his proper place. This is what God does. When he's at work, he brings order because he is a God of order. And what does a church need when their worship is chaotic? It needs to be reminded of the, of the God that they worship. And that's what Paul does here is he says, listen, our God is a God of order. The, the, the worship at Corinth, it was chaos. People shouting over one another, people trying to show off what they can do, a kind of worship of experience sort of thing. Their services had, they, their times together left everyone feeling like this is just something spinning out of control. Paul's like, you're worshiping a God of order. Reflect that in your worship. The enemy wants to divide us. The enemy wants to bring discord. He sows uh, seeds of discord in relationships. And he loves to see public worship be uh, 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 sort of anarchy. That's what the enemy does. James 3.16, where you find jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So friends, I would suggest that we learn to see things for what they really are. When you hear about a family that is struggling, or you hear about a marriage that is struggling, or, or maybe you are experiencing that in your own life, or you hear about a church, like I did this week, that's going through a horrible, horrible, nasty kind of experience, what is really going on there? What's going on there is the opposite of what God is. He is orderly in his character. And in everything that he does. So tower one, build up the church. Tower two of the bridge is God is a God of order. You need to reflect that in the way that you conduct yourselves within the ministry of the church. Okay, so those are the two towers. The reason I do that is I'm pretty sure uh, that when they built the Mackinac Bridge, they built the towers first, and then they suspended the road from it. I doubt very much that they built the road first and then put the towers in. You've got to have the one to support the other. Now, I'm just a pastor. I'm not an architect or an engineer. Um, but is that not the case? 
Okay, so hopefully we have put the towers in place because there are some challenging things that he suspends from these two towers, which we're going to get into now. And let's do that. What does Paul have to say in light of this? And we begin in verse 26. Here's our text today. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. He then has commands for speaking in tongues, which we, we saw last week. We pick it up in verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. All right, so the first thing that he hangs from uh, these two towers is the whole matter of order in worship and the way that we uh, conduct ourselves. And in, in doing this, he, he shares an, a really intriguing glimpse into what worship might have been like in the first century church. Now, you know that it's in many ways different than today. We know, for example, that they met in homes at the time. So we're talking about a much smaller gathering. Uh, and these homes, by the way, are not like in a modern-day American home. These are like first-century homes, which would have been much smaller, might have had a courtyard or something, but smaller gatherings of people so that the feel of the corporate worship service probably was more like what one of our small group gatherings would feel like than necessarily, you know, gathering in a, in a room the size of this one. So don't, don't, uh, don't sort of place our experience upon theirs. We also see that there was uh, great participation. One person brings a hymn. One person brings uh, a, a teaching. It, again, kind of like a small group. In our small groups, no doubt, there's probably, hey, we're getting together Sunday night. And, and one lady goes, well, I'll, I'll, I'll bring something to eat. And, and somebody else says, well, I heard the greatest thing on the radio. Can I play it? I've got, you know what? There's a new song I've been listening to, and I love it. Can I play it? Uh, small group leader and the other guy well i actually had a little something i wanted to share from my devotions the other week and so i'm like yeah let's get together everybody bring your stuff so it's kind of like a spiritual potluck is kind of the 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 picture that you get from this passage maybe like a plymouth brethren church some of you might be familiar with the plymouth brethren they kind of operate this way where uh y'all you you just kind of get together and everyone sort of brings something and you have a nice time much less uh, structured than most evangelical churches, so maybe you've seen that. I have some family actually that are that are in the uh, Plymouth Brethren Church. But he repeats the goal of all of this in verse 26: All things should be done for building up. Now we looked last week at the parameters for the for the for the tongues. Notice that he gives parameters now for prophecy which we have defined as the proclaiming and applying of God's truth. He gives these now, uh, beginning in verse 29, and they're almost the same as that of the tongue speaker. It says this, Let two or three prophets speak, and let others weigh what is said. Please note those words. So limited number, two or three, 
And as they are speaking, others are to weigh what is said. Now, what is he saying there with that? Why is that uh, important to him? Well, here's why it's important. Christianity has never been about mindlessly listening and following. It is a thinking faith. And in the churches, it is so critical that the congregation not just be, you know, during a teaching time, sitting there going, well, whatever he says must be true. Not at all. That's, that's a cult. Okay? That's a cult. Rather, what we're called to do is to carefully weigh or discern what is said. So that maybe I could be, I could ask you like right now as I'm talking, what, what's going on in that brain of yours right now? And I don't really want to know <laughs> for the most part. But I want to, I want to encourage you that the Bible calls for careful, discerning listening. Even in this passage, let others weigh what, what is said. Okay, weigh is a measurement. By what measure is what is being said from the front? Uh, what, what measure is it to be made? How I feel about something? Or what my mama and my papa told me about this when I was growing up? Or the way that we've always thought about this, our traditions? What is the measure for teaching and proclamation in the congregation? And the class said, the word of God is, right? This is the plumb line, the measure for everything that is being said. And we see in this passage, Paul admiring a congregation and aspiring the Corinthians to be a carefully listening church and to be measuring everything that is said by what the word of God says about it. And this is a very important point. I have no desire whatsoever for you to, to hear me, even, even what I'm saying right now and, and as the gospel truth. You need to think about it on your own. You need to measure it on your own. And see if, if what I'm saying is true. Now let me ask you why that is the case. Why even if a prophet prophesies, the text here says, gets up and says a prophecy, why doesn't the church go, well, that must be exactly the case? Or even speaking in tongues, if, even if it's interpreted, does the church go, well, that must exactly be the case? Why? Because what is true of the person who is speaking? They are human. And what does it mean to be human? They are flawed and sinners. You have a sinner talking to you right now, which means that what I say doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It just means it's suspicious. Okay. (laughs) It is suspicious because I can so easily turn and twist and sort of self-orient, self-glorify truth that an undiscerning church would easily just go along with. Don't do that. Don't do that. And we live in a day where this, I, we could talk more about it on time, but how this is needed. I, I tell you, It bugs me when I have people in our church that come up to me and they say, 
And this may not make the radio. I'm just going to say it anyway. <laughs> it bugs me when I have people in the church that come up to me and they say, man, this is totally awesome. You need to listen to this guy. And I look at the guy, you know, and it's some media guy that they've listened to or they really like him. And I, I know the guy's like, you know, uh, what's the old fraying? A, a, a few fries short of a Happy Meal or something like that. He's, you know, theologically, he's, he is uh, not quite even a Happy Meal. And I think, why are you listening to this guy? Why? Or here's a book. You need to, and I look at the, at the author of the book. And give me books. I mean, I'm fine with giving you give me books. But uh, give me good books. And, and by that, indicate that you are listening and reading with discernment okay we need to be a discerning church only scripture is without error okay this is without error everything else suspicious okay other passages that teach us, 1 Thessalonians 5, but test everything, hold fast what is good. 1 John 4, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, there's a doctrinal test to it. Now, Michael Green proposes some helpful tests and i'll give these to you you won't write them down fast enough they'll be on the on the on the web this week here's some tests number one does the word being brought to us glorify god is it in accord with the rest of scripture does it build up the church is it spoken in love does the speaker submit to the judgment of others is the speaker in control of himself? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in the life of the one who speaks? So friends, listen very carefully. Like the Bereans in Acts 17, who when the Apostle Paul came to them and taught them, they searched the Scriptures to find out if what he said was true. If even the Apostle Paul got up to speak here at Bethel Church, there ought to be some pages flipping and turning and people going, ah, we've got to think about that. Now, he's not scheduled to speak anytime soon, but if he ever did come, I would want you to do that. Test everything, including what I'm saying right now. Okay, so he hangs that from, from uh, the, the, the towers. We move now to, shall we say, a slightly more delicate matter. And some of you who maybe have been looking ahead are thinking to yourself, oh, this is going to be so good. How is he going to weasel his way out of this one? We come now to apparently another problem in the church at Corinth. And this is a surprising one. <laughs> apparently, there was trouble with some of the women folk in the church. The sisters. <laughs> now some of the men right now are going, oh, oh, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> now men, before you get all slap happy about this, I want to say part of the reason there was problems with the women was because of spiritually passive men in the church. 
And now the sisters are getting a little slap happy thinking, oh, this might be good after all. You go on with that, Pastor Steve. Well, let's just read the text. We're just going to read it. And then we'll see if we figure out what what it means. Here's what it says. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, I didn't write this. And I got to thinking, why the Apostle, or why why the Holy Spirit perhaps inspired the Apostle Paul to be the one who would write this. And I think it might be because he was single. And had nothing to fear in going home after writing it. And perhaps that's why it's so wonderful for me to preach this as a single man with no price to pay when I get home. Now, I hesitated to joke like that because all, it's all inspired by God, and so don't allow that to demean it in any way. I'm just having fun, okay? And I sometimes get notes about my attempts at humor uh, from people who don't realize that there is an attempt in it. So no letters this week, please. Um, I love the sisters too. So uh, where do we start when it comes to figuring out what this means. And I would suggest that we have to start back in verse 33, one of the towers. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So let's go back in our mind to what I said earlier about the character of God. Remember, God is a God who prizes order and delights in things that reflect his character. Now the question is, does this include sexuality and gender roles and the answer is obviously yes if you go back to genesis 1 when god made us in the first place it is noted that he made us in his image male and female he created them so from the beginning our image bearing was connected to our sexuality so that maleness and femaleness are a part of god's good Plan And so man uh, that is here, you are male because of God's good plan. And, 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 and woman who is here, you are female because of God's good plan. Both are a part of the image bearing of God. Both are exalted. Both are to be honored. Well, we talked earlier about how God, what God is like within, his, within the Godhead. You have Father, Son, and Spirit. There is plurality of personhood, equality of worth, diversity of role. That's the way God is. And God loves it. Again, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they're not in competition. They don't resent who's doing what and why you get to do this and all that. They think this is beautiful and glorious. And so when God created us, he built into our sexuality... That same plurality in unity, that same equality and diversity of roles, which he loves and delights in 
Because when he sees it, it's like he's looking in a mirror. He's seeing himself. And he is the most glorious, beautiful being in all the world. And so when God created not just us, but also the institutions that mark society, namely marriage, family, and the church, he intended and built into these similarly equality of personhood, diversity of role. And in that purpose, God created masculine leadership, like the Father is the leader of the Trinity. So how does that then relate to what we have here before us? Well, we see Paul highlighting a diversity of role, one little but important diversity of role. And it's not the only verses that teach this. Let me give you a couple of others. Here's 1 Timothy 2. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. 1 Corinthians has already spoken to this in chapter 11, uh, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, we've done a lot of teaching on this. It's available in the bookstore. I'm not going to re-preach these messages other than to summarize this, that the Godhead treasures the headship of the Father within the Trinity. And that God values then the reflection of that masculine leadership in the marriage, in the family, and in the church. And so what that means in the church then is, is that there is a, between men and women, there is equality of personhood. There is equality in redemption. We are neither male nor female in Christ. But when it comes to the function and the role... God has established a reflection of the Trinity in the ways that we relate to one another, specifically in masculine leadership and in feminine willing uh, uh, submissiveness. That is what he is saying here. So what does it mean, though, that women are to be silent in the church? Hmm. I mean, a little earlier, we had a couple of women that were singing to us. That would change the nature of that, wouldn't it? <laughs> they just hold the mic and they don't say nothing. What about a woman praying in the corporate assembly or reading scripture or something like that? Is that what about uh, women talking at all when we get together? In other words, is it in the absolute sense a woman must not say anything ever? Bad time for an amen right there, by the way. I'm just telling you guys, don't even go there. Well, it cannot mean that because of other passages of Scripture, like Titus 2. Older women are to teach younger women. 1 Corinthians 11.5. Paul endorses, we studied this, Paul endorses a woman prophesying in the church if she has a head covering, which we talked about was the cultural expression of a woman in submission. 
We have Colossians 3.16 where we are commanded to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, verbal expression, not just men, but all of us together. Further, we see back in verse uh, 28, almost the same language used for the tongue speaker who doesn't have an interpreter. Notice what it says. If there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church. Now, does that mean that if you have that particular gift, you weren't allowed to ever say anything about anything? No. It's speaking to in the respect to the situation where you have the gift and no interpreter. He was fine to share and talk and all the rest, the rest of the time, but in that regard was not to do so. So what does speaking, what kind of speaking then is he prohibiting uh, from women in the church? And uh, to answer that, I'm going to quote an organization that, that deals with this. It's a really wonderful organization, the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. This is how they say it. The teaching of men in settings or ways that dishonor the calling of men to bear the primary responsibility for teaching and leadership. I cannot improve on that. Let me read it again. The teaching of men in settings or ways that dishonor the calling of men to bear the primary responsibility for teaching and leadership. Now, does that mean that uh, women are not allowed to speak spiritual truth? No. Does that mean women can't pray, read scripture, share about how God's working in their life, uh, that kind of thing? No. These kind of things are tremendous blessings, and we need to be comfortable with men and women doing that publicly in our assembly. I would maybe make this distinction. Maybe this will be helpful. There is a difference between uh, a woman standing up and saying, let me just tell you what God has been doing in my life, or let me tell you about the story of God's grace in my life, or this is, this is what God is doing in my family, my marriage, my home, whatever it might be. That kind of testimony sharing And a woman who stands before the congregation and says, take out your Bibles, and I'm going to tell you what this means. Now she has uh, assumed a position of authority, a kind of governance over the congregation now, where she is exerting that authority in a way that God intends uh, for men, for masculine leadership. Now, does that mean that uh, women aren't incredibly gifted to teach? Not at all. We have women in our church that would give any man in our church a run for their money. Wonderfully gifted women. It's not about that at all. Does this mean she's not able to do it? No. It just means that she's not called to that within the gathered assembly of the church. Now, in context here, what I think he is saying remember, the context is the weighing of the prophecy, the speaking of truth that has been given. That for a woman, uh, if, if we had like a, a time after this where, does anybody have a, an issue with what Pastor Steve said? If a woman stood up and said, I do, you sit down and now you all listen to me as I tell you what this really is all about. She is now assuming a kind of teaching role, even in the, in the doing of that, that Paul says is not appropriate. She would be much better off uh, waiting till later, talking with her husband about it and uh, learning from him. Now, why is this important? Or is this a much ado about nothing? It's important because of the second tower. God cares about order. 
He cares because he is an orderly God. And the role of men and women in the church is a part of what he treasures. Now, an interesting caveat that I just want to note here, and this may be one of the things that, uh, as I read it, kind of struck you a little bit, is what we see in um, what we have in verse 35. He says this, If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. Now I'll let you chew on that one a little bit. But I want to highlight what this implies. A couple things. One is, Christian marriages that are here, it implies that the norm for a Christian husband and wife is that they're going to talk about spiritual things. When they're together, it's not going to be uncommon for them to talk about the Lord and talk about ministry and talk about church and talk about uh, being God-centered in their marriage and in their family and maybe rejoicing in what God's doing in their friends and their small group and that this is going to be common and a normal part of a healthy Christian marriage. And so, husbands and wives, I just want to ask you how much of that is is, is going on? How much of our, is, how, how common is that in your day-to-day experience? I think it implies that. It also assumes something about husbands. Christian husbands will be able to lead their wives in spiritual discussions. And so, men, I want to challenge you here. The Word of God is saying that you have a responsibility to have a capability to lead in those kinds of discussions and a willingness to do it as well. Now, wives, before you get all again slap happy, going, keep it going, Pastor Steve. This also implies a kind of attitude from a Christian wife who is willing to listen and to consider the spiritual guidance of her husband. And I will tell you, Christian wives, it's very difficult to lead a spiritually domineering wife. Or at least I hear that it is. And so you have to be very careful not to uh, nag your husband about what he, how he's failing in this regard. Or you're going to end up having an even more spiritually passive husband. Because husbands don't respond well to that. It doesn't encourage them at all. So the ideal that's laid out here in a Christian marriage is a husband and wife who have a fairly regular kind of spiritual conversation with one another and a kind of relationship where when there is a question on the table, the husband is willing and able to lead to an extent and a wife is willing and able to listen to an extent. And in that, they're able to honor the Lord in their marriage. And I just put that out for the the Christian couples that we have here. Uh, And I also want to say to the dating couples that are here, in particular, if you're a girl, because I think this is the most common thing. If you're a girl and you you hear me talking like this and and you're dating some guy wherever he is, even sitting next to you, although I don't want anybody to punch me out after the service, but I just want to say, if you're thinking to yourself, well, once, once we get married, he magically will become somebody like that. You are delusional, okay? It's not going to happen. You would be far better off breaking it up 
and finding a man who wants to lead you spiritually. Now, that doesn't mean that you've got to find Billy Graham or, you know, he's got to have written a systematic theology or something like that. So give the guy a little bit of slack, all right? And I say that to avoid the physical confrontation after the service that might ensue. <laughs> but do you hear what I'm saying? Okay? We need to develop in our singles the right kind of perspective or the right kind of spouse to be looking for. And we have a implied kind of relationship that is laid out here. Again, why does God care? Because he's a God of order. If you'd like to know more about this, I would encourage you to go to the website of this organization I mentioned. It is cbmw.org. And they answer many questions that you may have, even as I try to answer a few here today. All right. We're concluding chapter 14 now. In fact, why don't we stand for the last uh, reading from this chapter. We've been in it for quite some time. Let me read verses 36 through 40. And with this, we will conclude. Final apostolic exhortation. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones in his reach? He's talking about the sort of arrogance of the Corinthians, thinking they were really the only ones that had it all together. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. And so we conclude now, coming back to our our picture of the bridge. Because what I really want you to get out of this is the two towers. These are the things that need to linger in our congregation. That everything is to be done for the building up of others. And if you're here thinking, that's exactly right, I need people around me who are going to build into me, you are missing the point. You are here to build into the lives of others. We're all here for that. And secondly, that God is a God of precision and symmetry and order and he delights to see that kind of organization and that kind of relating to one another within the church. And so it's my desire, these two towers, they stand a long time here at Bethel Church. I think God would be honored by that. Amen? Amen. All right. Join me in a word of prayer.